You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. A lot of you know I have the joy of being a father. Uh, I've never had the joy of raising daughters, but I have had the joy of raising sons, three sons. And I, over the years, it has been my desire as a dad to not only teach them about the God who created them, and also how that God has communicated to them through his word and the salvation that he has offered them for the forgiveness of their sins through faith alone and God's Son alone because of God's grace alone. But also I felt a sense of responsibility as a dad to offer sons to society that would be responsible citizens. I could not guarantee, it's no promise made to me as a father in the scriptures that by the time my children leave my home, that they'll be in Christ, that they'll be Christians. I, I don't know God's will for them in that respect, both in timing and circumstances. But I can take responsibility, at least for teaching them those things, and just teaching them about life. And so over the years, raising these sons, I've wanted to teach them anything from how to have conversations, making eye contact, how to be a good listener, how to honor their mother as the first woman that they would encounter and that that would ripple out into other relationships with other women in society. One such book that I've appreciated titled How to Raise a Gentleman, a book that could probably use a little bit more circulation in the city of Miami. It covers various topics, introductions, greetings, and leavings, Shopping, offices, and waiting rooms. Playgrounds, playdates, and playing well with others. Party manners, dining in, dining out. When nature calls, bathrooms, belching, boogers, gas, spitting, and scratching. It's a practical book. Telephone manners, good sportsmanship, written correspondence, giving and receiving, and other topics. This work and other works I've read either on my own and distilled it to them, or at times even read works like this to actually them and had discussions over the years. Well, now my sons are age 22 and two 19-year-olds. My 22-year-old's been out of the house for a number of years, working in Alaska, coming back to Miami during the off-season. My other 19-year-old is finishing, has just finished up his first year at college and will return back to college in about a couple weeks time out of state and my other 19 year old is about to enlist in the military and I would lie to you if I did not tell you that in these sort of final months if you will I've been thinking what do I need to cover that I've not yet covered or what have I covered that I should probably cover again not naive to think I can say everything now and they'll remember it well but at least as a sense of stewardship and I'm reminded as I think about my own sons, I'm reminded about so many of you. Because the truth is, pastoring is a lot like parenting. 
there is a sense of great responsibility that pastors have for God's people. Those people don't belong to the pastors. In fact, kind of in an ironic twist of story, that pastor is one of those people, a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ. But that pastor has been given a responsibility to give an account to God for such people who have committed to that pastor and those people and community have committed in a local church. Think with me as Paul even describes his relationship to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, as he's writing to them, he uses this type of parenting imagery as he speaks to them. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And again, you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. But friends, today I want to begin a series. It will not be a series that runs concurrently in the following Sundays, but rather it'll be single installments that will be invested into over time that can be referenced later much like perhaps a table of contents in a book that's been read before, a series titled Spiritual Parenting. Because I do feel responsible for so many of you. I say not all of you because quite honestly, I don't know all of you. Some of you are new here, welcome. Some of you have been kind of attending here, welcome back. But others of you have committed here. This is your family. You've become a member here. You've consciously committed in love to one another. As we have to your, as your pastors, so you have to us. And I feel a great sense of responsibility, as I know Pastor Chris today and Pastor Ronald does as well. Everything we are to learn and everything that we should teach you as pastors, we should teach you from God and his word. Our goal is not to shape you in the likeness of our preferences or our personality, No, we want you to be who God has called you to be in the distinctive reality of that individual personhood, and yet a collective commitment we have as Christians to the Word of God. And whatever God says, we listen to. And so this morning, I want to make such an installment in this future developing series. The title of this message is Spiritual Parenting, Giving. I want to teach about giving. Everything we are to learn, we learn from God and his word, and we identify with him. This is even why we take on the name Christian as followers of Christ. We are disciples, as we've been learning in the previous weeks in the book of Matthew. One evidence among countless displays of Christianity is that Christians come to understand and appreciate everything that they have is from the Lord. Their life, their salvation, their jobs, their relationships, their health, their housing, their money, everything. I'll take my word for it. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. As a result of learning this, Christians are constantly growing and learning how to honor God with all that they have their relationships, their time, their mind, their money, everything. Now, let me state at the very beginning, admittedly, I have been hesitant to address this topic with a number of you for a couple of pressing reasons. Number one, 
not everybody here this morning, as it is on any given Sunday, is a Christian. Perhaps this is your first time and maybe the only time in a long time in which you would, based on the relationship you have with somebody else here, come to church. And I would hate for you to mistakenly think, oh, I see, I was right. Pastors and churches, they just care about money. And if you were to walk away with that interpretation, you'd be completely wrong. In fact, quite honestly, this is a great morning for you to come. It's like coming to someone's family table and sitting down with their family and watching them interact with each other. What they're like without you is a good picture of what they're really like. And you get that opportunity. And I want to speak to you specifically for those of you who are not Christians a little bit later this morning because I want you to understand something that's distinctly related to this message. But there's others of you who come from not a non-Christian background. You come from a Pentecostal, particularly of a particular slant of Pentecostal, prosperity gospel background. If not you, it's your siblings, it's your aunts, your uncles, your parents, your grandparents, your cousins. And prosperity gospel has distorted the gospel entirely. Even with that modifying term, prosperity gospel, for those of you who do not know what I'm referring to, prosperity gospel basically says you will prosper in life if you live by faith. Well, how do you show that you have faith? By giving your money. And if you're not prospering, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, how do you show that you can have more faith? By giving more money. Ironically, the only people who seem to prosper with this theology are the people getting it, the charlatans who sell this trick. While the common people are played upon by their ignorances, their naivete, wanting God to care for them and believing, again, that they should continually be poor accordingly. But this is not at all what the Lord of God says. What I want to do this morning is to teach this lesson by both getting to know you and by the state of your understanding of what God has given you, how to disciple you. And to do that, let me ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're not familiar with the Bible or you maybe don't even have a Bible, you are welcome afterwards to go to the Welcome Center. I can see them with my own eye. We have free Bibles back there for you. Now, we're not committed to your Bible inventory like you're going to have five free Bibles back at home. Just simply wanting you, if you don't have a Bible, there's one for you. We want you to have a Bible. And if you do have a Bible or maybe you have a Bible app, you're like, I have no clue where 2 Corinthians is. That sounds like a Star Trek term. It's like a new aeon in some sci-fi film. It's a letter written to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth. Like there's a city of Miami, to Christians in a city called Corinth. And this is the second letter on record that Paul, the writer, writes to them. He's saying a lot of things in this letter. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to zero in on 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The context in this is he is commending the Corinthians to be aware of how to live like the Macedonians another group of Christians. So follow along with me as I read not one, but two chapters. I do that because I want you to hear not only all that he says, but see it in its context, lest you misunderstand it. Paul says the following in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13, for, though, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a manner of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need and that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. Third time it's being said that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with him, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Chapter nine, verse one. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of, for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I would be, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we'd be humiliated to say nothing of you being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge your brothers to go on ahead of you to arrange in advance for the gift that you had promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteous endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Okay, so what we just read, to give you an understanding of it, is Paul is telling this church in Corinth that he helped plant, hey, I'm about to come back and see you guys. But before I even get there, I'm sending some other guys to be with you. But part of the reason we're coming is not only to be with you and enjoy fellowship together and enjoy more time in teaching in the word, but we're coming as well to be able to collect an offering from you because there's other Christians, particularly in this context, back in Jerusalem, who are going through a famine. In other churches, like in Philippi, that's the church being referenced in the place of Macedonia, they've already collected their money, and they're saying, hey, we want to make sure you're prepared as well. What I want you to see in that context is that Paul makes commendation of what they have done and who they are while continuing to give instruction to what they should do. Sometimes when people are taught about money, they feel a great sense of insecurity, perhaps because they feel exposed. But instead, what Paul is doing here is he means to commend where he can commend. In the same way that he does with the Thessalonians as he tells them to excel still more as he speaks of their love. Well, to just take another lap around the track briefly here, as you think about this text, What are some of the observations we can see? Well, going back to chapter eight, verse one, Paul recognized what is being said repeatedly throughout chapter eight and chapter nine. Giving is a grace of God. It is participating in that grace. It's also out of care for other people. So often, if we examine what we have been given, we often think wrongly at best, selfishly at worst, that whatever we have is for ourselves. When actually, so often what God has given us is a means to give towards others and care for them. We even see this in 2 Corinthians earlier on in the same book, in chapter 1, when God has comforted some of them, Paul tells them that that comfort that God gave you is so that you can now comfort other people. So whether God is giving his people comfort or God is giving his people resources, it would be naive at best and sinful at worst to simply think that's just for yourself. Instead, he speaks 
how this is a conduit of care for others. We also see in verse 7 of chapter 8, this was a demonstration of their maturity. As it talks about here, this act of grace in verse 7, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So there was not a compartmentalizing of the Christian life. There's not like, well, we will serve, but we just will not give. No, it was a life lived unto the Lord. My goal here for you this morning is to teach you from the scriptures in order that the Holy Spirit would persuade you. The goal is the same goal that Paul had for the Corinthians that I would have for you in Miami, here at Grace Church, that you would be compelled by the grace of God as you've seen the Son of God conduct his very life accordingly, and that we, in keeping with being like our Savior, would imitate his example. I have no interest in manipulating or laying some heavy burden of guilt or somehow twisting your emotional sensitivity, that's a short-term fix. That doesn't change and get to the heart of the matter. So as we think about this, going over this chapter 8 and chapter 9, let me give you four lessons to consider about giving. Four lessons. Number one, we should give first. We give first because it is a demonstration of our faith. Giving first is a recognition that what we have been given, all of what we've been given, comes from the Lord. And the Lord knows our needs and provides and will continue to provide accordingly. The temptation for many Christians is to give last, least, and begrudgingly. That is immature at best and sinful at worst. Because it says, I will let the Lord be the Lord of my eternal life, but not of my present life. I will trust him for an eternity in the future, but not in the present reality of what I will live and how I will live. Secondly, we should give generously. It's so interesting in the text how commonly he refers to this over and over and over, how he describes their generosity and how it continually displays it. What it is that he wants them to know, even as it says in chapter nine, verse six, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But where does all this come from? Well, this comes back to chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The truth is, we have a skewed perspective on wealth. By and large, as many of you know, perhaps even from some countries you've come from or from other family members who are in such other countries, Americans, by and large, by comparison, are overwhelmingly prosperous, overwhelmingly in a place of blessing. And yet our perspective can be skewed because as that Lamborghini drives by, you're like, man, I am so poor. As you watch that YouTube video, as they give a tour of that high rise in downtown Miami, you're like, Man, I'm in a slumlord over here. I'm just, just, I'm just having a difficult time. You have a perspective. So we should give generously. And some Christians legitimately, because being so new to faith, say, where would I start? Well, one place I would recommend you start is start with 10%. Give 10% of all of your gross income to the Lord. 
I don't think in any way that that necessarily begins its point of generosity or in the sense of concluding, rather. I think it can begin for that. All of it's the Lord's, not just the percentage at which you give. I think even what John Piper said on this. He said, giving God a tenth of our income does not deny that all our money is God's. It proves that we believe it. Tithing is like a constant offering of the first fruits of the whole thing. The tenth is yours, O Lord, in a special way because all of it is yours in an ordinary way. We should also give proportionately. Look back to how commonly this is said. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. For they gave according to their means beyond their means, according to their example in verse 3. But then again in verse 12 of chapter 8, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. There is this repeated regular understanding. God does not expect everybody to give the same because not everybody has the same to give. But this is where we can see such examples by which we can give proportion to what God has given us as a Demonstration of faith and generosity. Fourth, we could see the, the importance of giving cheerfully. We give first out of a demonstration of faith. We give generously. We give proportionally. We give cheerfully. We actually believe it, that it accomplishes something, that we believe actually materialism will not have a stranglehold on my heart. That envy that I'm so calmly tempted with that I'm killing it by giving away what God has given to me. That greed that somehow so overwhelmingly exceeds why my Amazon wish list could grow so large or my dream list could grow so extensive is increasingly being ripped up into pieces, if not in person, at least in principle, as I give away. Because I want to recognize I enjoy living for another world than just the one I see. I enjoy giving to the needs of others even if they don't know that it's me. I enjoy advancing the gospel even in places that I've never been. But my church is committed to and is sending people and supporting people there. I enjoy that. The problem is a lot of people will take this last point and go, that's why I don't give because I don't give cheerfully. You don't want me to give non-cheerfully so therefore I should only give cheerfully. I know you. I know you. The reason I know you is because I know me. What's the challenge? The challenge is to let your emotions guide your decisions. To have your feelings get in front of the facts of what you should do. I think in time you'll begin to realize as you give out of faith how you begin to enjoy walking by faith and continually giving up accordingly. Some of you might feel like, I'm just not there yet, Eric. It's not where I'm at. Some of you are new in Christ. Some of you are new and coming back to Christ. And truthfully, there's a lot more significant issues that need to be addressed in your life. But as Paul says, this is one of the issues that should be addressed in all Christians' lives. As Paul says in Acts 20, that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. I would ask for you to pray that God would change your heart and mature you in this area. What should you pray for? Think about this. This is a conversation God is having with you through his word. Perhaps some of you are enjoying it, which is a sign of your desire to grow in grace. Perhaps others of you are repelled from it. I simply mean to leave you with the Holy Spirit and the work he's doing based upon the teaching of the word of God. 
But here's things I would direct you to pray for. Number one, pray for a greater desire. Pray for a greater desire. Kind of dovetailing off of this idea of giving cheerfully and the fact that that might be absent because there's a lack of desire. We want to be truly committed to worship. Friends, this is really not a sermon about money. This is a sermon about love and devotion for the Lord. I mean, that's actually what Paul was saying to them, right? He says in chapter eight, verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love, of your love. I'm reminded it was only a few chapters ago in Matthew 26 that we were in together as a church. We learned the story of Mary of Bethany. Remember that woman? She was crazy. She took something of unbelievable worth, this giant jar of alabaster perfume, and she did the craziest of things. She broke it. Break it, you can't put it back in. And she poured it out on Jesus. And the disciples, well, they, they appeared to be discerning. They appeared to be caring about the poor because they say, Jesus, what is she doing? That could have been sold for money to care for other more important needs. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26? He said, the poor you'll always have with you. I'm not saying you shouldn't give, shouldn't give to the poor. But he went on to teach a lesson about Mary's actions that taught something about Mary's heart. That she had realized how much she had been forgiven. And she's showing that thankfulness to the Lord by how she poured out everything she had to him. What they're showing that the disciples, there's a direct correlation with how much a person understands what God has given them in his son and how they respond back to him with whatever God's given them. Their time, their relationships, their careers, anything that God's given. We want to pray for a greater desire. Secondly, we want to pray for a greater trust. We want to pray for a greater trust. And this is a multifaceted problem of trust. The problem of trust is, first of all, actually believing that it's ours and not trusting the Lord for it. Or that he won't provide it again for us. We would do well to remember Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18 where Moses teaches the Israelites before they're about to go into the promised land, knowing they're tempted to forget what God has done for them. He says this in verses 17 and 18, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. What's he saying to these Israelites? He's saying, take care lest you forget the Lord. It's an issue of trust. People sometimes will say, well, I would be more giving if I had more money. It's doubtful. It's doubtful. Here's why. If you and I adopt that way of thinking, we show we don't have a money problem, we have a heart problem. The commas and the decimals may change, but the heart should be the same. And so it's a question to audit 
Is it that I don't trust the Lord? The third thing we should pray for is a greater perspective. And a very well-known passage, let me ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. There's a well-known verse here, just by curious show of hands, how many of you have heard the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Raise your hand. All right. Yeah, popular verse. You might even be a non-Christian, not even familiar with the Bible, didn't even know where this is at, but you've heard that verse before. Well, contrary to popular use of the verse, including my dearly loved mother who loved this verse all the time, it's not like spiritual steroids to like get you through a marathon though she would often quote this with me when we'd be on a training run together. We can do this, son. We can do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, it's not the time to teach my mom hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. I was like, I love you, mom. We're doing this. The question is, what is Paul talking about when he says this? What he's talking about is this church in Macedonia. So you know that church that Paul's talking to Corinthians about, the Macedonians? You're about to read about them. You're about to hear their own conversation because Paul talks about them, not only about them, but about himself. And it teaches us something we can pray for for ourselves when I say a greater perspective. Look at the text, Philippians chapter four, starting in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity talking about giving to supply his financial needs. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of in Christ Jesus." To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, what a big, bigger perspective we need that Paul had. They wanted the Philippians to have a much greater perspective. Now, I said to you earlier, for those of you who are not Christians, that I wanted to speak to you later, and I'm at this point that I want to just explain something very important here for you. Because now I hope what I'm about to say will make sense in light of this. How we live life is an expression of what we believe. Where we invest, what we do, what we prioritize, what we love, what we find secure, 
versus what we find insecure, what we don't love. I want to be very clear for those of you who are not Christians. There is in no way anything in the Bible that teaches that you can barter with God. Hey, God, I'm not going to lie. Last night was crazy. Was crazy. I'm embarrassed. But I'm hoping if I give a little money or if I go to church or if I promise to do better on Monday or next Saturday night that you'll be a little bit less pleased with me or more pleased with me, a little bit less displeased with me. It's not how God works. We heard just an overwhelmingly sober-minded passage read to us earlier by Stephanie in a prayer by Saul on if God was to count iniquity, no one could stand. Even seemingly our righteous works are like filthy rags in comparison to his holiness. So the question you need to be asking is, not about giving money, but to whom are you giving your life to? And you might say, I don't give that to anybody. I keep that for myself. And friend, I would tell you, therein lies the problem. Because you can't save yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You can't love yourself. You can use all these phrases that the world teaches you. But the reality is, you and I one time had a problem, and you might still have it, and that is you have such an irreconcilable gap between you and a holy God because of your rebellion. It's who you are. It's who all of us are. There's no way to bridge that. No amount of money, no amount of good works, no amount of nice phrases, no amount of churches is going to pass that measure. The only thing you can do to have confidence of God accepting you is asking him to forgive you and surrendering your life to him. This conversation we're having right now that I'm having with a bunch of Christians is how they're learning how to live after having done that in light of having done that. Not to minimize that, but to demonstrate, to illustrate, God has forgiven them, they are changed. And they're learning how to take their life under the lordship of his word and live according to his grace. But for you, the only grace I want you to hear today is the grace found in the free Forgiveness of Christ through faith alone. That's the only thing you need to walk away with and hear. As others of you are thinking about your giving, your displaying of things to give to, you have to recognize, what would you give to? I mean, you have the American Red Cross, American Indian College Fund, Boys and Girls Club, Clinton Foundation, Feeding America, Greenpeace, Make-A-Wish Foundation, Netherlands Leprosy Relief, Samaritan's Purse, Toys for Tots, Vietnam, Vietnam Children's Fund, Youth with a Mission. There's also the Critter Connection that helps abandoned guinea pigs. There's the Gunnar Wheels that helps disabled dogs get wheelchairs. There's the Preserve Victura. That's, their, that's to preserve the deceased President Kennedy's sailboat, Victura, that's on display at his presidential library. Oh, man, let's keep that thing going. Zombie Squad, this is my favorite. You can give to the Zombie Squad. They are a legitimate nonprofit that exists, a charity for a zombie removal business. And when business is low, you think, they do other service projects in various communities. The question you have to ask as a Christian is why would I give to my church? Because you want to take earthly money and use it to accomplish eternal results well beyond your lifetime, well beyond your personhood. And if you cannot do that with your church, you need to find another church. 
Why do I say that? Because if you don't think you can trust your church with your money, you cannot trust them with your life. If you feel like you can trust your church with your life, you can trust them with your money, because that's just, it's an argument for the greater to the lesser. And I mean that just wholeheartedly. That's not trying to be like cheeky or snarky or rude. That's trying to help you recognize why this is either a lot easier than you recognize or maybe a lot harder than you understood. And that's a connection you want to make sure to recognize. You want to resist the temptation to give emotionally and selfishly, to giving when you feel like and what you feel like. That's a demonstration of your immaturity at best and ungodliness at worst. When you give to the local church, particularly Grace Church, but if you're a member of some other church and you're just visiting here this morning, I'm sure principally this is true there as well that I mean to commend you to. When you give to Grace Church, for example, you're supporting pastors that other Christians, in addition to yourself, can get full-time care and ministry care for, including preparing and teaching sound doctrine lessons and bearing fruit in decades and lives to come. You're supporting missions work in Sweden and Europe. You're supporting church planning work around the country through partnerships at Pillar Network. You're helping reach non-Christians in Ethiopia and Somalia. You're supporting church planning work here in Miami through the sending and planting of Faith Church. You're providing a good testimony to our community to not only care for the facilities that provide, but also provide staff that helps us do that. You're providing discipleship resources for new Christians and evangelist materials for non-Christians. You're helping reach women who are in a sexually exploited strip clubs through our ministry of Scarlet Hope. You're providing biblical counseling training in Miami through our partnership with Low Country Biblical Counseling Centers, partnership with us to train more of us. And on and on and on it goes. More than any one of us could ever accomplish just by ourselves. But together we do this. Here's the truth. God doesn't need your money. I'm not here asking on behalf of God. If that's what you've concluded, then you've completely misunderstood. God doesn't need your money. God can do whatever he wants with your money whenever he wants to do it with your money. God wants to see what you're gonna do with your money. What are you gonna do with it? Two resources I'd recommend to you. We gave all this out to our members back in January as a good discipleship resource. Why Should I Give to My Church by Jamie Dunlop, small booklet. We have these for free if you want it. And then Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, Discovering the Secret of Joyful Giving. I don't have these for free, but I do recommend it. Great resources for you. I end the way I began. I feel responsible for three young men by the last name Bancroft. One of them is sitting in the front row right here right now playing electric guitar earlier. I feel distinctly, uniquely responsible for that young man and his two brothers than I do any other children on the planet. And that's my responsibility as a dad. And I love it. I'm sobered by it. I don't think I'm the best at it, but I want to be faithful to do it. Similarly, I'm not responsible for all the Christians in Miami. I'm just responsible for the ones, along with Chris Jude and Ronald Perez, responsible for the ones who identify as Grace Church. And I want to make sure, as your pastor, that we parent you well through the scriptures and enjoying every grace that God has for you.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.